Section 10 of The Haunted Organist of Hurley Burley and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katla Christian's Daughter, San Mateo, California. The Haunted Organist of Hurley Burley and Other Stories by Rosa Mulholland. A Strange Love Story. Part One. At the foot of a certain street in Innsbruck, right above the famous gold-roofed house, rise the purple walls of the Alps, mountain walls so apparently straight and perpendicular that they seem, according to the mood of the spectator, either to block the way to heaven or to lead to it by difficult ascent. On a summer day a young girl who knew all the accessible paths of yonder great stepping-stones to the skies walked down this street in Innsbruck with her back to the golden roof and all the purple glory of the Alps behind and above her. She wore a high-crowned alpine hat with a silver tassel and a costume of hunting-green cloth. Her face was round and fair, and her crystal-clear eyes had a look of unusually vivid intelligence. The hair, which curled softly and crisply around her temples and was plaited in thick masses at the back of her head, was of that fairness which is almost white, and is seldom seen except on very young children. Her features were small and softly moulded, and something very like the light of genius was shining from her countenance. She walked on with a bright, preoccupied look, as if something beautiful which other people could not see had caught her eye, and fixed her attention, and then suddenly turned in at the open door of that curious church, where a strange company of bronze men and women occupy forever the centre of the nave. The only living creatures in the church were a few old women in furry headdresses, at prayer, and a very young man who was standing with folded arms studying the bronze statues. The girl made no noise, crossing the threshold of the door, but the moment she entered the young man started electrically and turned to see her coming towards him, a glow of delight on his face, as if the sun had suddenly shone out upon it. She came quietly and stood by his side. "'Have you gazed enough for today?' she asked, with a twinkle of glee in her eyes. "'Come on, Max. It is your work I want to see, not these.' Max shook his head, but caught the little hand she placed imperatively on his, and followed her out of the shadows of the church into the dazzling summer street, where the sun was glittering on the eaves of the gold-roofed house and making the huge alpine walls behind it take a richer purple than before. Max was a tall youth with a square-browed dreamy face full of a kind of rugged beauty. His eyes had not the vivid light that glanced from the eyes of the girl, but they were full of dreams of glories to come, burning with a latent fire destined yet to give its share towards the warming and the lighting up of the world. He led the way into a small house at the corner of the street, and up a staircase into a bare room littered with clay, with half-formed images and casts, and where an unfinished statue in clay stood near the window. From the face of this statue he withdrew the cloth, and gazed discontentedly at the face of the creature he had made, a nymph graceful and lovely with the features of the girl at his side. "'It is you, Hilda,' he said but without your soul in the eyes. When you are not here, it is like you, but when I see your face beside it, 
nonsense you do not want a likeness of me said hilda you want an ideal being it only wants a little tenderness dear max may i touch it max nodded and hilda's little fingers passed over the clay with a few delicate touches while a curious look of intellectual power grew on her face and changed its character for a moment after a few minutes she withdrew behind max and peeped over his shoulder to see the effect of what she had done max drew a deep breath and stared in amazement at the change which had been wrought the statue which had been coldly perfect seemed to breathe your power is supernatural he murmured the work is now divine you are dreaming said hilda laughing all the divinity in it is your own i but drew forth what you had left slightly veiled max shook his head i am too much the artist he said not to recognize your gift but i am not jealous of you hilda with you by my side what may i not hope to accomplish hilda laid a hand on his arm and looked into his face with joyful eyes do not make me vain she said but if cooking you dinner and keeping your house in order doing all that a woman can do to make your home happy and your difficult upward path a little easier if all that helps you accomplish great things then indeed i shall feel you are the better for me max took both her hands in his and looked down into her eyes with a wondering worshipping gaze which troubled almost as much as it delighted her as if she feared what might be his next change of mood she turned away her head and said gaily come with me now at once you promised to take a holiday to-day let us be off to the mountains and leave this nymph to her solitary thoughts he put on his hat mechanically and again followed her whither she would lead him they went out of the town and took the road to the mountains the world was exquisite and max shook himself out of his dreams to enjoy it hilda prattled to him between bursts of laughter about all that had occurred at home up yonder in the blue since his last visit there what droll things the children had said what a pleasant dance there had been at a neighbor's wedding how lisbeth had burned a hole in her new dress and all the trouble there had been to get it nicely mended people going down to the town passed them and said that is max edelstein and his betrothed hilda what a pity they cannot get married at once said one they could if they liked for hilda has a nice little penny which her father left her it is a pity when people are too clever you see nothing will suit them but going to rome it will be a long time saving to go to rome who is there to buy his sculptures in innsbruck better if he had been content with wood-carving like so many of his friends the lovers reached the nook of the mountains in which their village nestled lisbeth hilda's sister-in-law was expecting them and had made a little feast a table was spread under a tree at her door and a troop of little sunburnt children came dashing out to meet hilda and her max lisbeth a good-humoured brown-eyed woman with a flame-coloured handkerchief twisted around her head and wearing her holiday jacket of black embroidered with threads of gold came out of the house with a baby on one arm and placed some fruit upon the table the wooden chalet was set deep in a cool green cave of bows on a platform of rock and under it and opposite to it lay a dazzling landscape of purple crag teeming golden valley 
and woods of all the richest hues of green. Up a pathway, seemingly made for goats, our lovers climbed and were welcomed by the motherly Lisbeth. The master of the little home, Lisbeth's husband, Hilda's brother, woodcarver, hunter, and tiller of the earth, now appeared, and the elders partook of Lisbeth's feast in the shade, while the little sunburnt children capered and danced in the sun. Max cast off the cloud of dreaminess that often wrapped him up, and talked to Fritz about the crops and the hunts, and all that was interesting in the mountaineer's life. The artist disappeared for the time, and Max was merely a stalwart youth of the mountains, with an unusually picturesque and intellectual face. Hilda took the baby in her arms, and laughter and prattle made the time fly fast, till Lisbeth said, "'Ah, oh, Max, have you seen the present that Hilda has given me? She has modelled my little dead Lisa, so that I think I have her back. Will you not show it to me, Hilda?' "'Yes, if you please, but it is only interesting to Lisbeth, dear Max.' The day passed, and evening came. Songs were sung, and Hilda accompanied them on the zither, throwing away her silver-tasseled hat she put on an apron, prepared the supper, and carried it out under the trees. Her fair head gleamed in the sunset as she went and came, and as the wave of warm light suddenly fell across her face and hands, Max thought she looked like a ministering angel descended to wait upon them. After supper, some young friends came from a little distance, and Fritz strummed the zither while a dance was held on a bit of green close by. Hilda danced with as much glee as any of the children. The moon shone out, the children pulled Hilda's hair about till it flowed around her like a gold and silver mantle, and Max would not have put it up again, and danced with her while it streamed about her shoulders. "'Hilda looks beautiful to-night, does she not?' said one of her friends. "'What a pity she will marry that melancholy Max.' "'He is not melancholy now when he is dancing. "'He is always strange and full of fancies. "'I would rather marry a man who could make a joke.' "'The dancing was over. "'The neighbors had gone home, "'and Max was asking again to see Hilda's model "'of Lisbeth's little angel Lisa. "'Hilda led him up the narrow stairs,' and into her own small chamber, where one of the ruddy little dancers of an hour ago was asleep in her bed. It was a tiny brown room, where almost the only decoration was the oblong moonlit picture of pine and crag framed by the open window. Hilda struck a light and lit a hand-lamp, and discovered on a bench the model of the child who was dead. Max folded his arms and gazed at it long and critically. "'Hilda,' he said, "'I wonder if you know what a genius you possess. "'Through my love for you I have learned to dabble in clay, that is all,' said Hilda. "'I have no genius, and I do not want it.' "'About this going to Rome. It is you who ought to go, not I.' "'Max, where are your wits? I wish there was money enough for two, and we could go together. But as there is not—' "'Why, I must wait till you can afford to send for me.' "'What I mean is this, Hilda,' said Max, with a sadness in his eyes deepening to gloom. "'You have a distinct genius of your own, and I ought not be so selfish as to absorb you into my own life and work. You have money to take yourself to Rome, 
and there you ought to go. Marriage for you will be the ruin of an artist. Not the ruin of you, I hope. No, of yourself. Then let me be ruined, dear Max, and let the world lose what it will never have possessed. I belong to you, and not either to art or to the world. I'm a traitor to art to listen to you. Then be a traitor. I love you better as a traitor. Max shook his head and gloomily withdrew the hand which Hilda had touched with her own. Hilda uttered a sudden cry, and snatching a hammer which lay near, raised it in her hands as if she would strike the model of the child and destroy it. Hilda! cried Max, seizing her wrists and struggling with her. It shall not part us! she cried passionately. Hush! Here is Lisbeth, whispered Max. Is it not lovely? said Lisbeth, coming up on tiptoe and speaking softly as if in a sacred place. See, dear Max, how Hilda loves my children. One of them sleeps alive in her arms, pointing to the bed. Another sleeps here in death, always before our eyes, by the magic of her hands. Ah, oh, what a tender mother our clever Hilda will be. Hilda burst into tears, dropped the hammer, and turning abruptly to the window, leaned her arms on the sash and wept with sobs into the night. She has never quite got over the death of that child, murmured Lisbeth. Come away, Max, and let her have her cry in peace. An hour later still, Lisbeth was sitting, spinning at her door in the moonlight, and singing to herself simple songs about little child angels who sometimes come down for a time, and live in good man's houses, and lie in fond mother's arms, but after a time have to go back to heaven. At a little distance Max and Hilda were walking up and down, their faces now gleaming in the shade under the trees, their figures now casting shadows in the light of the moon. Round them lay a great circling abyss of gloomy darkness, fringed with black pine-tops, and crowned by frowning crags, and a silver veil was hanging over all. "'What I mean is this,' Hilda was saying. "'You forget that I am a woman, and judge me by yourself. You think that because you have taught me to model in clay a little, that I must want to be an artist and conquer the world. But you are my world, and I will conquer no other.' Max's clasp tightened on her hand. You must not deny your own power. But I am jealous of it, and I hate it. Whenever it comes before you as today, as tonight, a cloud covers your face, and a shadow rises up between us. Though you love the woman, you would banish the artist from your heart, and therefore, Max, because I love you, I will kill that power that disturbs you and me. Never while I live will I touch clay again. Then you will make me a murderer a destroyer of one of heaven's best gifts. Rather, I will save you from being the murderer of my heart. Why, oh, why will you not let me be happy? I would rather bake your bread and sweep your floor than be the owner of the best studio in Rome. Would we were there side by side, Hilda. Without you, my inspiration will be gone. My works will be dull and dead because your coffee will not be as good as some I could make for you? Because I shall be without your suggestions, your criticism, your touch that calls life into a face. 
What would I not give to possess that magic touch? Me, perhaps, said Hilda sadly. I would die to give it to you, that is, if it has any existence. Max shuddered. Do not talk of dying, he said. If you were to die, there is no kind of death so hateful as my life would become. Hush, said Hilda, putting her fingers across his lips. Only the good God knows anything about death. Summer deepened, and as the time approached for Max's departure for Rome, he found it more and more difficult to think of tearing himself away from Hilda. "'You are my inspiration, my soul,' he said. "'Without you I shall fail, and be only half a sculptor.' "'Dear Max, I will come to you whenever you can send for me. Do you think the mountains will not be dreary, and the very children's voices sad in my ears till I can stand by your side again?' Hilda, would you dare? Would you venture to come with me? With you? Hilda's pale face colored to the hue of a rose for a moment, and turned paler than before. She trembled and drew her breath hard, and then she spoke with a gladness of a bird's song in her voice. If you will dare it, Max, why, so will I. All the shadows disappeared at once from the young man's face, and his eyes shone. "'You may have hardships to endure, my darling,' he said, kissing her hands rapturously. "'They will be welcome,' laughed Hilda, "'if only to prove how strong I am. "'You mean to walk across the mountains, Max, and so will I, if you will take me. "'What an autumn walk it will be! "'And once in Rome, why, Max, I will save your money by my economy.' "'Your money, Hilda.' "'Ah, Max, you forget that the cast of your nymph has gone on before us.' and that before we get there she may be sold. Heaven granted, cried Max, while a lightning flash crossed his face. If I were ambitious before, my Hilda, I am ten times more ambitious now. Hilda was one of those women to whom no personal sacrifice is too great to add, be it never so little, to the happiness of the beloved. She was well aware that in accompanying Max hardships and difficulties were awaiting her, but she also knew that with her by his side, Max would have better courage to cope with and conquer the world. She said to herself that she would eat little, labor hard, patch and mend her clothes and his, do all that lay within her to cover the extra expense of her presence in his home. They were married in a little church in their mountains, with a band of children smiling round them, and Lisbeth weeping behind their backs. Oh, why had not Max been satisfied to remain a carver of wood at home? Then Hilda need not have left her kindred, and might have flourished among them through long and happy days. Why, indeed, good Lisbeth, yours is one of those questions which can never be answered. The day after their marriage they set out to cross the mountains on foot. A wallet on Max's shoulder held all their luggage, a purse soon into Hilda's dress contained their wealth. Glorious autumn weather reigned over the mountain world. The hollows under the pines had never looked so purple, the peaks and crags so roseate, the clouds so gold, the firmament so blue as when Max, the sculptor, with his wife by the hand, went trudging along the narrow paths that led the way from Innsbruck up to Trent. In this memorable journey they spent their honeymoon. In the morning, travelling bravely over the rough roads, climbing rude heights, 
the while hardly daring to expend their breath in speech at noon cooling their tired feet in some running water and eating their frugal dinner under the deep broad shadow of the pines at evening saying a prayer at some simple shrine and afterwards stepping on gaily through the cooler atmosphere seeing the sunset colours fade along the mountains and the moonshine come forth to light them upon yet another mile of the way nights spent in the rudest chalets a day stolen here and there to explore some town through which they passed endless happy conversations about their love their art their future the heaven of united life that lay on before them so was accomplished the passage of the mountains not the greatest of their difficulties that lay in their path by edelstein and hilda his wife through the queer old streets of verona they walked and under its lofty arches and then away across the italian plains dropping like a pair of swallows into art galleries and churches but hurrying ever with eager steps towards rome and there they stood at last one day weary dusty poor and friendless but glad at heart and full of hope a studio and two rooms were hired at once and max went to work upon marble and clay the nymph was not sold but what of that it would do to furnish the studio till other works were created by the sculptor's hand hilda's ingenuity was exerted to make the vast almost em empty rooms which were their dwelling look homelike and gay a curtain here a spray of flowers there a rude vase of fine form and striking colour in a corner trifles like these made a home out of a wilderness singing sewing tripping in and out on household errands or standing behind her husband's shoulder discussing his work with him hilda's days were as happy as a queen's they were in rome they were together max had lost his melancholy and he had forgotten his strange fancy about that genius of hers which surely never could have existed if he remembered it at all he but glanced at it pleasantly and the thought of it passed easily away if in moments of depression he called her to him and asked her to touch his work she would answer reproachfully that her hands were full of flour and that his dinner must spoil were she to soil them with this clay winter and spring passed over the little store of money had diminished sadly and no work of max's had been sold to replenish the household purse hilda held the said purse and always spoke cheerfully of its contents to max who wrapped in his dreams scarcely realized how the passing days were running away with silver and gold neither did he notice that hilda's always pale face was growing paler and paler accustomed to gazing on faces of marble he was not so struck with her pallor as another might have been and the look of care always disappeared from her eyes when his were turned upon her max in rome conscious of growing power with a brain full of beautiful things as yet uncreated had all he wanted and noticed nothing wrong his home was bright and pleasant and the food he needed was regularly placed before him the long summer in rome did not tell upon his strength as it told upon hers but as she did not complain he was not aware that she had become less healthy than of old it was when winter came round again that hilda took fear to her heart in earnest and counted the money that was left with paling lips 
how could she tell Max that the funds were so low? She would not tell him. And yet, where could she find money to go on with? Then it was that she broke her resolution never to touch Clay again. On the chill winter mornings when Max was sleeping soundly, having got to rest late at night, Hilda would creep into the studio and go to work. What she produced there Max little dreamed of, but from time to time sundry small, graceful and original figures found their way into shops where such things are sold. They were quickly disposed of, and the money they fetched replenished Hilda's exhausted purse. She jealously guarded her secret, and Max toiled on, dreaming of glorious works he was to do in the future, and only occasionally waking up to observe that Hilda was a wonderful manager of their slender means. He never guessed that she was giving her health, her talents, her life, for the pittance that supported them both from one week to another. It was by means of these little figures of Hilda's that the nymph came to be sold after all. She was in the habit of going in, on her way to market, in the mornings to speak to the dealer who had her works in charge, and to learn if any orders had been left for her. One day an English gentleman was standing in conversation with a dealer when she appeared, and as she entered the shop she heard the words, "'Here, sir, is the lady herself.' The gentleman was young and of fair complexion, and had a shrewd, sensible, and withal refined and sympathetic face. He bowed to Hilda, and made known his business at once. He wanted two other original figures beside those of hers he had already bought. Hilda took the order, and then, with a sudden impulse, said, "'If you would kindly come to see me at my home, my husband could show you something more worthy of your attention.' The stranger was interested, and promised to call as she desired. Then she said, with a little embarrassment, "'Please do not speak to my husband of these figures of mine. I do not wish him to know of their existence. He would think I fatigued myself.' The stranger took the situation at once, bowed, and assured her he would remember her wishes. He thought she looked thoroughly fatigued indeed, and wondered for a moment how long she would have the power so to exhaust herself. And this was the beginning of the friendship between Max Edelstein and Donald Stewart, which lasted through so many after years. That very day Donald paid his first visit to the studio and bought the nymph with Hilda's features, paying for it with a noble sum. The patronage of the wealthy Englishman, or rather Scotchman, was all that was needed to bring Edelstein's genius to notice. Money and orders for work flowed upon him, and the crisis of his fortune was past. Many new comforts appeared in his home, and Hilda no longer rose in the chill hours to do secret work with her hands in the clay. Her figures were seen no more in the shops, her artistic efforts were all in the past, and on the sweet spring days she lay on a couch at her window, with her eyes fixed steadfastly on the everlasting hills. Still Max did not see that she was dying. Donald Stewart did, and to him she spoke of her approaching death. "'Do not disturb, Max,' she said to his good friend, when he would come from the studio into her little sitting-room to visit her. "'He thinks I shall be strong soon, and his thoughts are with his work. One day I know he will astonish the world, and in that day he will not so much need me. Nay, I do not mean to doubt his heart.' 
I know he loves me well, and perhaps will never love another, but he has passed the point up to which he needs a woman's devoted love and care. When does a man cease to need that? said Donald Stewart. Hilda was gazing wistfully at the purple hills. During the next twenty years, she said, Max will live in his art alone. His own creations will be his idols, sweetened to him by my memory, which will cling around them. His life will pass in the happy throes of work such as his, and he will hardly miss me from his home. After twenty years have passed, she paused, and a look of intense pity and longing settled in her eyes. "'Who can look so far ahead as twenty years?' said Stuart, guessing her thought. "'At the end of that time he will begin to need me again,' said Hilda. "'The first harvest of life will be won. The desire for a little rest will have begun to awaken him. He will look around and want me at his fireside. Oh, God, that I then could come back to him!' Stuart's eyes filled with tears. "'A strange idea,' he said softly. "'But I have no doubt or fear but that you will really be near him. Your spirit will never lose sight of him.' Hilda smiled. "'Never,' she said. "'Never, as God is good. But, oh, I meant more than that. If the Creator would but grant me my heaven in letting me return, even years hence, to this world, to Max.' Donald's heart was shaken by the pathetic cry in her voice, but he knew not what to answer to so startling a speech. "'Do not be shocked at me, Mr. Stewart,' she said, turning to him with one of her old smiles. "'But this is an idea that at times charms away my pain. And if I come,' she added playfully, laying her little palms together like a child at prayer, I will come without the talent which I believe was the only flaw that Max could ever see in me. Anything of genius I may have I hereby solemnly bequeath to my husband. If I come again from heaven, I come without it. In the flush of the Roman spring she slipped away from them almost unawares one morning, uncovered with Italian wildflowers she was laid in her grave. Max took her death in a way that surprised even Donald Stewart. He appeared stunned and unable to realize what had happened. So happy had he been in their late good fortune that this sudden and unforeseen ending of all their joy seemed to unhinge his mind. He became dull, absent, almost stupid, absorbed in the memory of Hilda, whose presence was still around him and whom he could not let go into the past. He did not hear when spoken to, took no part in the life around him, neglected his work, and forgot to enter his studio. Orders remained unfinished, and people began to say that the promising young sculptor had got softening of the brain. He would not stir from Rome that summer, nor leave the rooms where Hilda's dresses and little ornaments and possessions still held their place, as if they might be needed in any moment. Through all the changes of that hot season in Rome, Donald stuck fast by his side, and when at last Max fell ill of a terrible fever, Donald took the place of a nurse by his bed. Thanks to his friend's unwearied efforts, Max arose out of his sickness, but pale and cadaverous like the living skeleton of himself. His mind seemed clearer now, and on the first occasion, when, sitting in Hilda's chair at the window, he spoke to Stuart of his wife, 
he wept like a child over his vanished happiness he blamed himself bitterly for his conduct to her in many ways having learned from the dealer who had sold her wonderful little figures how hard she had worked to produce and dispose of them unknown to him he made a misery of this proof of her unselfish devotion to him i knew she had distinct genius he said and if i had insisted on her developing it she might have been alive to-day she denied herself sleep and suffered cold and weariness to provide the money which i was stupid enough not to perceive she must have earned her love was indeed limitless said stuart consolingly but you need not blame yourself she had no wish to develop a separate genius from yours she said to me what said adelstein anything that she said i must hear that if she could come back to you she would come without that talent which she thought you magnified and which she did not love in herself come back yes it was an odd thing to say but another proof of her devotion to you it grew out of a conversation i had with her one day when i was wrapped up in my selfish work when you saw what was coming and i would not that was her comfort she dreaded a lingering trial for you if she could come back did she say that donald she said i think there's no harm in my repeating to you her tender and fantastic thought she said that she could wish that god would give her her heaven by allowing her to come back to you twenty years hence twenty years hence she thought for twenty years you could live absorbed in the splendid labors that are around and before you after that i after that you would want her more i understood her to mean that if she could return to you then as young and sweet as she was a year ago then when your genius had slaked its thirst for work and a little tired you might look round for companionship and human love that so to come would be the desire of her soul a strange light came on adelstein's face brightening steadily into a glow of exultation you think she will come donald stuart started and stared he felt a qualm of fear that he had been unwise in speaking as he had done while his friend's brain might still be in a delicate state i think dear old fellow he said gently that such a fancy of hers only assures you that she will watch and wait for you in eternity who can count on living twenty years and two like you will be sure to clasp hands when you at last have passed the verge of the grave but that was not what she meant said max almost querulously since i have survived her death i may live to be a hundred and she spoke of twenty years mark me donald she will come i must get on with my work and be ready to receive her stuart was pained and puzzled by the strange manner in which max fastened on this fanciful idea he said no more then but could not fail to notice how this conversation formed a sort of turning point in his friend's convalescence max began to recover in earnest and now worried himself because his weakness prevented his returning to work at once a little more alarmed for his friend's mind than for his bodily health stuart determined to leave no effort unmade to restore the poor fellow to his normal state of health and strength and being himself a rich man 
he saw his way to providing the necessary care and change for the invalid who interested him so much. He ordered his yacht to come to meet them in the Mediterranean, and packing up Max, he carried him away for a summer's cruise across the world. The voyage was a great success, and Edelstein was, or appeared to be, completely restored to health of body and mind. He no longer talked despondingly, and ceased altogether to speak of his dead wife. Donald was almost inclined to blame him for this, and said to himself that, after all, those who sorrow most wildly for bereavement are apt to be those who forget the soonest. Edelstein did not return to Rome, but set up a studio in Paris. After that the star of his fortunes rose higher and higher. Stuart had married and settled down on his Scottish estate, and only occasionally saw or heard of his friend during a few days spent from time to time in the French capital, or by a short but affectionate letter penned in moments of weariness by the great sculptor to his friend. And so the years went over, and the name of Max Edelstein was of European fame. Twenty years passed away. Edelstein had been established long in London, and many of his most beautiful works had been created for and prized by Englishmen. Unbounded success was his, and admiration and adulation had been poured out upon him. Nevertheless, he lived in his work alone, had few friends, took long walks with his pipe for sole companion, and was never to be seen in large social gatherings. His only society was that of one or two friends who sometimes dined with him in his perfectly appointed house. In women he felt no interest whatever, and would not have their company, no matter how flatteringly it might be offered to him. Invitations from great ladies dropped into his hands, but they failed to bring him captive into even the most charming drawing-rooms. People said it was affectation, moroseness, conceit, which made him live the life of a recluse in the heyday of his fame, but Edelstein did not hear or did not heed what they had to say. End of section 10. Recording by Katla Christian's daughter, San Mateo, California.